Thank you so much, Dr. Moeller. What a generous introduction. At one point during it, I was beginning to wonder if I was actually going to be able to deliver these lectures today. <laughs> Thought you may do that for me. It's a personal joy and delight to be here. It's an unspeakable joy and delight to be here. Every word about the Duke K. McCall leadership lectures at Southern Seminary, I love. The ones who issued the invitation, Dr. and Mrs. Moeller, have been so kind to us now for over two decades and uh, so kind to us the past two days. Southern Seminary is an institution that I love. Uh, I came here, we came here 20 years ago this academic year to undertake the MDiv degree, graduated with a with PhD degree 10 years ago this academic year. 25 years ago, just beyond 25 years ago, as a freshman in college, came to know Christ, was slated to be baptized at my home church, and that night we had a guest preacher I'd never heard of uh, from an institution I'd never heard of, and his name was Al Moeller from Southern Seminary. Ministry was the furthest thing from my mind that night, but when God began to awaken in my heart a desire for ministry, uh, this was a natural place to look. And one of the joys while I did serve here uh, was to get to know Dr. McCall. I was privileged to serve as a pallbearer, actually, in his funeral in the year 2013. Dr. Moeller helpfully recalled uh, the story of Duke McCall, so I will not do that here. Uh, I will just reference two points that are of interest. First is that Dr. McCall personally knew uh, James P. Boyce's daughter, and they visited together in Boston in the 1950s on occasion. They enjoyed tea together, uh, perhaps something stiffer, perhaps. Uh, they enjoyed tea together and uh, visited together, and that's a reminder of how near history is. Secondly, as Dr. Muller mentioned, Dr. McCall became the pastor of Broadway Baptist Church, then the most prominent congregation, Southern Baptist congregation in, in Louisville as a young man at the age of 27. And uh, Dr. McCall shared with me the story of how those interviews went and, and with the, the deacons and the lay leaders there. And, and he conveyed to them at one point, he said, if, if you call me as your pastor, I will interpret that to mean that you believe that God has called me to be your pastor and I intend to so lead accordingly. Well, a layman in the church said, so Duke, what you're saying to us is that if we call you, you're, you're going to be in charge. And he said, that is not what I am saying, but if you were to misunderstand what I am saying, that would be the appropriate direction in which to misunderstand. <laughs> that is Duke McCall. So it's good to be here at Southern Seminary, good to be here with Dr. and Mrs. Moeller, so many other friends, and good to do so under the banner of the Duke McCall Lectureship. We're thinking this morning about leadership, but in particular about leadership in our Southern Baptist moment. I've entitled the lecture, Why I'm Hopeful About the Future of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I hope to connect some lines for us this morning as it relates to our future, our current stewardship, and how together we can experience a healthy, happy future as a convention of churches. As we do so together, I will reference a few challenges before us but challenges that we are ready to meet, challenges that we are able to meet, and challenges, brothers and sisters in the room and those watching via live stream that, that I believe we, we must meet. We enter the conversation, though, about leadership, and I will make a confession on the front end. I, I have a love-hate relationship with the topic of leadership. Uh, I love to lead. Uh, I love materials about leadership. I'm a consumer of much of the leadership resources and occasionally seek to contribute to it. But we live in this age where the, the leadership industrial complex, as I refer it to, has invaded every area of our life. Their podcasts are on our smartphones. Their magazines are on our tables. Their books are in our bookstores. Their theories are in our organizations. Their emphases are in our heads. 
And so we are inundated with, with leadership, theory, practices, insights. But in our generation, it seems as though there is a dearth of actual leaders. Then you rewind the clock and go back a few decades or a few centuries to when we had titanic figures in the church and in the history of our nation, statesmen who led well, and they predated by far the, the modern invention of leadership theory. And they lacked these podcasts, these books, these magazines, these conferences, these workshops. So they managed to lead so well. Which leads me to make the point that leadership in so many ways is intuitive, it's instinctive. It's yes, learned by common grace and from scripture, but much of it we don't have to go to a distant workshop or be on a never ending stream of receiving the next leadership book and reading it, but applying what we know from scripture and what we experience via common grace. So having said that, I do want to begin to draw us closer to think about leadership as a topic. And the first principle of leadership is that leadership is stewardship. Leadership is stewardship. And there's a stewardship that we bear in this room and in this moment as Southern Baptist. Well, as I'm speaking to college students and seminary students, but I'm also speaking to faculty and staff and administrators. I'm also speaking beyond this room to friends and colleagues and other institutions and Southern Baptist churches and entities. And together, we must remind ourselves that to lead is to steward. We are not mere spectators of the future no more than we are mere beneficiaries of the past. We are stewards, our lives are to count in this moment, and we are to labor together and work together to realize a future that is healthier and more biblical than the one we inherited. Leadership is also contextual. That's the second principle of leadership. To lead is to lead in a context. To lead is to sit down to a, a chess game at a table, a game that your predecessor and their predecessor and their predecessor played before you, and a game that for a season you will sit down to play and someone after you will play as well. And when you sit down to that table, by the way, there are a few pieces that are already off the board. There are other pieces that are in places that are altogether undesirable, but your stewardship in that moment, in your generation, in your place of leadership is to play that game as wisely and as faithfully as one can. Leadership is contextual. One of my favorite responsibilities here, Dr. Muller, when I served with you was uh, getting to help steward the, the seminary's plots at Cave Hill Cemetery and to go and take friends there and drive them through, through, the, through to the three different Southern Seminary plots there. And, and to see in those plots, not just the story of Southern Seminary, but to see in those plots in many ways, a representation of Southern Baptist life from our origins in 1845 until this present day. So to lead is to be a steward, and to lead is to lead in context, and we are Southern Baptist stakeholders, and there's a particular responsibility of leadership that exists in this room. Southern Seminary is a dear place to all of us, or we would not be here, of course, but Southern Seminary, if you know our history, has a unique role and has played a unique role in the history of this denomination. All of us are stakeholders, all of us are stewards, but in a more pressing way, my brothers and sisters who live and serve at 2825 Lexington Road, feel that weight more heavily. So what is our context as Southern Baptists? Our moment is a complicated one. Accusations abound, investigations are necessary, litigation is unfortunately common. Social media brings this to us by the moment in ways that are altogether unflattering. When people ask me about the Southern Baptist Convention, I say, look, the Southern Baptist Convention is the ultimate Rorschach test. 
We have more than 14 million members congregated in 45 or so thousand churches, and you can find within that whatever you want to find. That challenge is exacerbated when you realize that we have millions and millions of members who have no real active engagement in their local church. So if you're looking for scallywags associated with SBC, they are in abundance because we are so massive and our boundaries are so loose. Some people see that. Some people choose to see that and our critics from the left, the theological and cultural left would, would, would zero in on the negative that unfortunately is sometimes found in our midst. But for me, that's not what I see in Southern Baptists. I see missionaries that I know and love and support and pray for. I see church planters that I'm training and rooting for. I see the Cedar Creeks and the Third Avenues and the Highviews and, and all the other churches in the city and beyond that we serve. And, and, and we, that is the Southern Baptist Convention that I know, that I'm giving my life to. So we gather this morning in this moment, though, with this Rorschach test, we might say, where you can look and see and identify most anything you want to identify. It seems as though in the year 2022 and in the season of ministry that not denominational self-loathing is in vogue. I stand before you today and say, that's not a winning strategy. But the tragedy is not that it's not a winning strategy. The tragedy is it's not a necessary strategy. I believe that Southern Baptists are a great people. I believe they're congregated in great churches and formed together in a great convention. And yes, God will discipline us from his word and by his spirit and, and even through instruments and means beyond our control, like the secular media, as they press in on our hypocrisies and on our failures. But at our heart, as a convention of churches, as a denomination, I believe Southern Baptists are a great people. And to serve them at Midwestern Seminary and in Louisville, Kentucky, and around these different denominational locations, it is a glorious opportunity and a sweet stewardship that we have. You say, Dr. Allen, are you an optimist about the Southern Baptist Convention? I confess I am this morning, and I say that not half-heartedly. I am, and I will tell you why momentarily as we get to it, but at this point I should acknowledge to be an optimist in these days might make one a contrarian. But I believe that position is one that we can take and that we should take. If you compare Southern Baptist churches to perfection, none will measure up. If you compare Southern Baptist churches to real live alternatives, I believe God is not done with us yet. So we have challenges before us, certainly have challenges before us. I want to survey five of those this morning with you and encourage us how we should respond to those. And I'm trying to draw lines under this topic of leadership, moving it from the abstract to, to the actual in this room today in lines from our lives and our studies and our service here to our churches that we are, that we are ministering in and to this collection of churches known as the Southern Baptist Convention in which we serve. I believe we have choices before us. Choices before us as a people, these choices, depending upon how we answer them, will determine our future and whether or not we should be hopeful about it. Now, I'll tip my hand now. I believe that we are poised and prepared to answer them rightly, and I will flesh out why shortly. But the first choice before us is simply this. We must choose biblical conviction over cultural accommodation. We must choose biblical conviction over cultural accommodation. 
In the world of statecraft and geopolitics, there is the, uh, the intentional strategy sometimes known as strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity is when one nation will on purpose not make clear how they intend to respond if another nation takes a particular course of action. The Korean Peninsula blew up in war in the early 1950s over ambiguity around how the United States would respond. Strategic ambiguity exists right now in the Taiwan Strait and who knows what may come there. In some sense, ambiguity, at least to some degree, is taking place in the crises over Ukraine, wondering what we will do or not do. But there's a strategic ambiguity that is tempting for institutions and churches and gospel ministers over these great cultural flashpoints in our generation. We moved, uh, as Dr. Muller mentioned now, I'm in my 10th year at Midwestern Seminary. We, God called us there in October of 2012, and shortly thereafter, we moved to Kansas City. And as I was there in my, in my early months, getting situated and trying to learn to lay the land, the region, and make a few initial contacts with seminaries in, my, in the general vicinity of the Kansas City region, I uh, zeroed in on one institution in particular I wanted to go visit. I was eager to go visit and visit with their president just to hear more about their work and, and to hear their story. I knew the, where they were theologically, very much to the left of, of Southern Baptist. I knew the president very much to the left of Southern Baptist. But I, I made an appointment and the president was receptive to me and I went out to the institution to visit, drove that way. And, and I'd never get walked in their office. I walked into the president's office there and, and it's the office that you can immediately tell from the books on the shelf, the portraits on the wall, oh my goodness, we live in different spiritual theological universes. But I also knew enough about this institution and, and the, the, the denomination that they serve to know that, that their churches are relatively conservative, not that dissimilar from Southern Baptist churches. Well, the con in the course of the conversation, I, I, asked, I asked the president, I said, just we're talking candidly here, help me understand, how do you manage this, this tension? I said, I, I sense where you are, I sense where your faculty is, I sense where your churches are, and there's this great distance between the two. And here especially I was talking about the issues of, of sexuality and marriage and human identity. And uh, the president looked at me and without humor, without embarrassment, simply said, as a matter of fact strategy, Dr. Allen, we intentionally hang out in the mushy middle. And we're gonna hang out in the mushy middle as long as we can. Now that's an immoral strategy, but brothers and sisters, it's also an untenable one. We live in an age when our culture will demand from us answers about who we are, what we believe, especially in these issues of human sexuality and identity. And we live in an age where we better be clear and loud and frequent about our biblical beliefs. Zeroing in on the Southern Baptist Convention in a more focused way, we serve a convention that lives fearful of doctrinal decline. And brothers and sisters, I believe that is a good thing. Yes, it can lead to suspicion at times and accusations at times, but I would rather live and minister in a convention of churches that is fearful of doctrinal decline, so much so that at times they are, they are overly alarmist that a minister in a context where everyone just assumes the best and hopes the best and isn't willing to sort things out. And that's when you wake up one day and you have drifted far, far away from your doctrinal foundations and your mission commitments. What about us these days? 
The Southern Baptist Convention now. Those of us in our churches. But there are issues before us, two in particular. One, I believe, that has largely sorted itself out, but one that will be before us and with us as long as we minister into the 21st century. And we must be ready now and willing now to be clear and to be loud about them. This year, CRT, of course, has been the news, critical race theory the past couple of years. And I think that is a passing storm, not because it's not a matter of urgent concern, but because I believe our nation and our convention has awakened to how toxic that system of belief and thought is. But the storm that is here and will forever be with us, I believe, as long in our lifetimes is this great issue revolving around issues of sexuality and gender and marriage and personhood. And let's let's remind ourselves this morning that where God has spoken on these matters, not only is it appropriate to obey, it is desirable to obey. And we have to be willing to confidently, cheerfully, winsomely, convictionally speak again and again and again. The issue of biblical complementarity. It, it, is, it is a noble, glorious designation God has created for men and women, equal before himself, but given different assignments, different roles in the home and church. And that is a glorious thing that God has placed before us. And so we confess that cheerfully and confidently. Issues of human identity and and sexuality and and again, marriage, all these matters of, of personhood, that to open our mouth and talk about them is to increasingly be on the on the wrong end of a conversation with our neighbors. What is more, I believe we kid ourselves if we think, if we get our tone just right, that will be culturally accepted. Our tone should be right because we should faithfully represent Christ. But the quicker we disabuse ourselves of the notion that if our tone is right, we will be accepted, the quicker we can move forward in greater biblical faithfulness. There is no perfect pitch to the ear of the secularist. Biblical sexual ethics, no matter how politely stated, will not be met with cultural approval. So what does this mean for us? It means that we should confidently, cheerfully, and publicly hold our confessional statements. And I'll tell you how I'm challenging our campus in Kansas City. It is this way. It is not enough to be adherent to Danvers, Chicago, Nashville, you have an M2000. We are not paid to be adherents, we are paid to be advocates. We're not called to merely affirm, we are called to articulate. We are honored bound to do so. And I would encourage us that we are to listen for the voices that are advocating, but also listen for the silence of those who aren't. Compromise usually begins with silence. It ends with disavowal. You have a role to play in this room, brothers and sisters. Southern Baptists are helped by the ministry of reassurance. What do I mean by that? They need to hear from us again and again and again what we hold and why we hold it, and to hear so in a confident, biblical, clear, cheerful way. Let us not inadvertently send mixed messages. Southern Baptists sense the land, the ground is changing beneath our feet, and it is. 
Our society is moving in many places. Our churches are moving. The church is moving. And they need to be reassured and to sense and to perceive that's not happening in their seminaries, their entities, their churches. To those of us who are serve, who serve as faculty administrators in Southern Baptist life, yes, biblically we are called to assume the best. Vocationally, we are paid to ensure the best. Theologically, doctrinally. Second choice I believe we must make, and these will move more quickly. Secondly, we must let our confession define our coalition, not vice versa. The confession, our Baptist Faith and Message 2000, must define our coalition, not vice versa. Students of military history know where I'm going with this, but in, in the first Persian Gulf War, America led a grand coalition of dozens of countries, and it was a, a, an effective coalition. And the coalition became so big and so unwieldy that in the final analysis, the, the number of voices globally limited what America wanted to do nationally from a military standpoint. The second Gulf War, the second Bush administration purposed not to make that mistake in their eyes, that mistake. And they said, no, the mission will define the coalition. This is what we're going to do. And if you want to be a part, come join us. The point is not that one war was better fought than the other, but the point is that we must determine for our confessional commitment to define our coalition ministerially speaking. Doctrine first, mission second, in that order, defining the boundaries of our ministry coalition. And those who are a part, and those who choose to associate with us and serve with us and work with us and then have the denominational self-confidence to let that sort itself out day to day, week to week with those who choose to be a part and those who don't. If someone leaves the Southern Baptist Convention, church, brother, sister, leaves, to go to a similarly conservative, Bible-believing fellowship of churches, that may say something about us. If they leave our fellowship to go to a church or collection of churches nomination that is clearly to the left of the Southern Baptist Convention, that may say something about them. We must have the denominational self-confidence to hold to our confessional statement, hold to our convictions, and let that define our fellowship, the breadth of it, accordingly. Third choice. We must choose to pursue theological and spiritual health over numerical size. We must pursue theological and spiritual health over numerical size size. A few years ago, I was approaching one of these round number birthdays. My wife began to uh, goad me to get a physical done, a, a thorough physical, and reminded me it had been a period of years since I had a physical, and pressing me to have a physical. And she's a beautiful, sweet lady, but I'm telling you, she's actually a killer on these things. She was agitating me to get a physical, get a physical, get a physical, and being the responsive, sweet, loving husband, I, I said no. I wound up developing a sinus infection and went into the doctor, a rather routine matter. I know the doctor well and went in to uh, 
just for the, a five-minute visit and to get my prescriptions. And I remember I'm there in the waiting room, Dr. Moeller, I'm looking around, and there's all this apparatus in the room, and, and I'm there in my little, you know, the little small room, you're in for the doctor comes. And I remember thinking, they must have the room set up already for like the next guy coming in. And I'm there, and the doctor began to ask questions, and uh, as he asked questions, I, I said, there must be some confusion. I said, I'm just here for a sinus infection. He said, there's no confusion, Jason. You're, you're here for a thorough physical. My wife had gotten to my doctor. <laughs> It was an unpleasant day, but it was a reassuring one to leave knowing things had checked out okay. A denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention, it is appropriate to take careful looks at how our churches are doing, how our witness is doing collectively. And for us, as we do that in the future, as we pursue spiritual and theological health and faithfulness, it most likely will mean that in our generation we find ourselves serving a denomination that is getting smaller, not larger. And we have to become okay with that. I'm not saying we should strive for that. I'm saying we have to be okay with that if we are being theologically and spiritually faithful. And that is difficult for us to stomach because for decades we've prided ourselves in saying we are the largest Protestant denomination. Well, perhaps God wants to make us smaller. Fourth, and along these lines, we must choose to renew our focus on the local church. We must renew our focus on the local church. Predictable for me from the institution that talks about for the church unremittingly to include this in this presentation this morning, yes. But understand as a convention of churches, we are nothing more than a convention of churches. If we want to have a healthy work collectively, that will only happen as we have healthy congregations individually. We must reassert and rediscover what healthy church membership looks like. Regenerate church membership. And brothers and sisters, when you have a denomination with 14 million members and less than half of that showing demonstrations of active church membership, that is a problem. And so those of us who steward roles like we have here and in Kansas City and the other seminaries, that's where it is incumbent upon us to be training ministers who will preach the word and who will treat membership seriously to rediscover a disciplined congregation. What a gift that would be in our generation to lead that type of renewal in our churches. There's a fifth choice I believe we must make. And that is that we must cultivate trustworthiness over suspicion. Now, wait a minute. Points one, two, three, and four sounds an awful lot like. Be clear, be convictional, doctrine first, confession first. A denomination always afraid of theological compromise, rarely experiences it. All that I said is true. And I believe it with all that I am. But within that, and as we do that, we must cultivate trustworthiness over suspicion. George Schultz was a leading statesman for America in the 20th century, culminating a career in the Reagan administration, uh, Secretary of State. He died just a few months ago at the age almost of 100. And just before he died, the last article I think he produced was an article called Trust the Coin of the Realm. And his article tracked throughout his life how trust 
at these different hinge points in his career had prevailed. And how if you're a nation, you have to be trusted and found to be trustworthy to have credibility. And if you don't have trust, it undermines everything else. Same is true for us, brothers and sisters. In our convention, we must cultivate trust. And the ingredients for trust are words like integrity, clarity, consistency. We must cultivate our own trustworthiness. And as we do, expect trustworthiness in others. And as we find that, exercise trust one with another. When our doctrine and our mission are right and clear, trust is in abundance historically. And those centripetal forces historically have pulled us together in a unifying way. When our doctrine is questioned, our mission is lost sight of, trust is undermined, and historically when that happens, it pulls us apart in a centrifugal way. We must cultivate trustworthiness in our generation. Now, wait a minute. I thought the title was, Why I'm Hopeful About the Future of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's exactly what the title was. And I'm hopeful about our future, not because of some like political assessment of the landscape. I'm hopeful about our future, not because of Nashville or Louisville or Kansas City or Richmond. I'm hopeful about our future because the people I know that are in the pews of our churches and the pastors I know serving our churches. And I believe I know their commitments and their determinations and as a people, as a convention of churches, we've shown ourselves not only willing, but determined to self-assess. Not only willing, but determined to self-correct when that is necessary. And we have the means to do so. And as we do, we know that we are a people of the book. And I believe God honors those who honor his word. We are people of the gospel, and God strengthens those who spread his saving message. And not... Most especially, we are nothing more than a collection of churches. And as our churches are faithful, Christ is faithful to his churches. So we're drawing lines here. Topic of leadership, Southern Baptist Convention, this room, challenges we face, choices we need to make. And I'm pressing in on this in a particular way, again, to our brothers and sisters who are part of this institution. Because there's a particular stewardship you bear here. I mentioned Cave Hill Cemetery at the front end of today's presentation. And to drive through Cave Hill Cemetery is to be reminded of that. And to go to the cemetery plots and see the names and the eras of their service is in many ways indicative of the broader contours and shape and narrative of Southern Baptist life. Part cause, part effect, but true nonetheless. A couple of years ago, I was at ETS. And having dinner with your provost, Matthew Hall, wherever he is. And we got talking, and uh, we were talking about genealogical research. And uh, he was doing some scratching around for his own family story. And I had been wanting to do that, always wanted to do that for my own. And we began to talk about where and how. And, 
And anyway, that conversation reminded me of, um, you know, I, I discovered a newfound appreciation for the Mormons, their work in genealogical research, Dr. Mullen. And uh, anyway, uh, Dr. Hall pointed me to a, a website that, that one could access. And so for a period of weeks, I got into this in my spare time, was digging around, digging around, digging around. And I was particularly interested, candidly, in my, my family's history in the Deep South from Alabama and our story there. And, and honestly, on my mind was, did anyone in my family ever own a slave? I, I, I did not think that was the case because our, our, knew our roots was one largely of, of poverty, not a, not a position, but I, I was curious to track that down. And so I'm going through, going through, going through this generation, that generation. Well, anyway, I get to the Civil War and learning who served where and who fought where. Well, anyway, my, my great grandfather, Alan Side, four removed, uh, I, I see he mustered and fought and uh, was, was, was fought and out, with, out from Alabama and was taken captive as a prisoner of war in Georgia towards the end of the war. So I'm reading and tracking that down, tracking that down, tracking that down. And, uh, and, and he was taken as a prisoner of war and he was taken to Louisville, Kentucky as a prisoner of war. Continue to read. He died in that prisoner of war camp in Louisville, Kentucky. Continue to read. He's buried in Cave Hill Cemetery. And all those times over the years, driving through Cayfield Cemetery, giving tours, telling the story, driving by my own great-grandfather, Ford Moved. I share that not as an interesting autobiographical fact. I share that as an illustration of the nearness of our history and of the unique labor you have here when you think of who has been here, who is here, who one day will come here and that institutional relationship you have to the convention as a whole. Brothers and sisters, the convention is near. The history is close. And the future together for us is not just to be waited for, it's to be stewarded and seized. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being with friends today and amongst friends. I do pray, Father, you would help us to be healthy, help us to be faithful here, help us to steward in our generation. We've talked about today, sound churches, strong pulpits, and to minister in our generation a way that leaves behind us healthier churches and a healthier convention of churches. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.